Welcome to the Disaster Tough Podcast, where we talk about emergency management by emergency managers. We share stories, lessons, and tips to help keep you moving forward. I am John Scardina, the host. I share my experience as a former federal emergency response official who's responded to some of the most extreme disasters over the past decade. I now lead a private emergency management firm called Doberman Emergency Management that focuses on emergency planning, mitigation, and response. As disaster responders, we find and endorse those products that we know will help you out in the field. If you fight wildfires, hurricanes, a pandemic, any disaster in the field, at a hospital or command center, listen up. You're missing out if you do not use L3 Harris for your radio comms. They are secure, portable, mobile, and scalable, which is great news for us in the field. A truly disaster tough radio system. Check out the XL family of radios by clicking on the show notes or simply go to L3Harris.com. Hey guys, once again, this episode was really packed with a lot of information. It was like an hour and a half worth of uh, talking, and so it was a really good information. In fact, we're already going to have him back on here because we're going to be talking about helping out first responders uh, during um, during that, that those moments of PTSD, and we're going to get to all that t- that later. But really what we're going to be talking about today on part one is Joe Hernandez's experiences as a search and rescue operator, especially in the urban environment, so USAR. So we're going to be talking about that. And then next week, we're going to do episode two, or or rather part two of Joe's episode, where he's going to get really into that nitty-gritty of um, making sure that we're helping out other people and uh, giving that uh, response advice. So check out part one today, part two next week. Welcome back to the show, everybody. It's your host, John Scardina. Man, another great episode lined up for you guys today. You asked, we delivered. We have an expert, USAR, that's Urban Search and Rescue, expert on here, Joe Hernandez. Man, he has 30 years of experience doing USAR. We're going to be talking all about his experiences out in the field, the lessons learned. And for the last 10 years, he's been instructing people at FEMA So those future emergency managers and those tactical level responders are getting trained by him, and you guys get to hear from him right now. Joe, welcome to the show. Hi. How was everybody? Thank you for having me on. John, thank you. Yeah, of course. So let's just jump in. How did you get into search and rescue, and was there like a catalyst moment, or were you a firefighter first? How did you do it? Uh, I was a firefighter working uh, in a city uh, just outside of Miami City, Hialeah, and uh, the FEMA urban search and rescue component was being developed shortly after the 1989 earthquakes in Palo Alto. And they were looking for the development of the federal teams and the powers to be within the city of Miami reached out to several individuals to try and get a team started. That's cool. And we were able to, yeah. So that was, you said 1988? That was, 89 was the earthquake. FEMA started mm. putting themselves together. And uh, one of the first few classes that were going on were in 92, and our team was developed, developing within 92, and by 94 was up on its feet. That's awesome. Um, you, got, you got grounded there. So uh, within, what was your first, you, what is your like, first real big response within search and rescue? 
Um, shortly after our team was uh, in formation and forming presently uh, the Oklahoma City in 1995, the bombing at the Alfred E. Miro building was uh, was the first response. Um, we were there as a late team, um, seeing the impact by the, uh, the teams that were there closest to the event. Uh, was phenomenal just to see that. It kind of geared everybody up to not knowing what to expect uh, in the future of why these teams were developing. Man, talk about like a first big moment um, because that was like a catalyst for a lot of learning, both on the preventative side, which we had another big learning moment for terrorism and and obviously in 2001, but like, like so many things were impacted from that. And now I talked a little bit about Oklahoma City in the previous episode, but just for like a lot of the younger generation who, you know, I was helping out with youth, for example, um, and uh, I was talking about the terrorist attacks in 2001. And yeah. one of the kids, he was like, dude, I'm still trying to get my driver's license. I was like, right, <laughs> you weren't even born then. It's just embarrassing. Yeah. So can you just kind of give some of the details of what happened in Oklahoma City and like what led up to it and the lessons learned? Um, we were know that it was uh, domestic terrorism. It was focused on uh, government building. Uh, the unfortunate event of that was that it involved, uh, of course, government employees and workers who worked within the building themselves and a nursery. Uh, that had children in it uh, that belonged to those workers that were being uh, left there while they began their day's uh, event. And so the impact of not only did they damage and hurt and kill people that they were targeting, but the innocent bystanders uh, was a significant impact. Um, Later on, within a few years, leading to the retirement of a very good friend of mine um, who had responded and was one of the first uh, crews to reach the... uh, the second floor of the uh, nursery and uh, began locating the uh, children, dolls, toys, and, and uh, et cetera. And so the impact, seeing what it does later on in life to a lot of those individuals is something for the youth to consider and understand and then know how to dialogue, share, learn from those experiences, and then move on to the next storm. Man, I'm glad that you we we started this off. This was just for everybody's sake. We weren't going to be talking a little bit of. We weren't going to be focusing on mental health at all. But yeah. somehow it's come up on almost every single episode, whether it's through my own experiences or experiences of other professionals, where like you wanted to, we we want to remind people that if you're getting into this, it's it's it in, does impact impact you. You know, one hundred percent. Yeah. It's, uh, ex- it's extended stress instead of incident stress. Uh, uh, firefighters, we are the incident, uh, short, temporary, we go on to the next job. We're usually on these disaster deployments. You're there for a long period of time. And so that impact is an extended type of, uh, stress factors and just reacts to different people. And, you know, even for those that aren't able to go to the disaster, they might be on the team. They're on the list. They're doing all their schooling. Uh, there's an impact for them as well, psychologically, um, not being able to go, not being chosen, um, et cetera. Um, So it's really important to involve them as much as we can, especially here on the uh, home front while those things are going on. We had a listener um, tell me that, you know, she always heard, you know, she's heard from several people on here like, hey, I have a disability. I can't go out. I want to go out. 
And, you know, it's just so that like that call out that whether you're in the field, you're an emergency manager or you're behind the scenes kind of have out logistics, whatever, like it's all part of that, that group. One, one group cannot do their job effectively if all other groups break down. Right. And they different roles for sure. But yeah. And there is an importance to like you just said in those different roles, even though they might not be able to do i.e. Uh, on our side, the confined space, medical treatment and care for a extended long period, uh, dark, dusty uh, smells, exposures that just not comfortable for them. They'd rather be treating those that are injured on the outside on a receiving facility and very understandable and needed a hundred percent. Yeah. Um, I'm, I did a uh, USAR training um, in U- the UK a little bit. Of, I mean, we're talking about micro a little bit. And man, I realized I do not like confined spaces. <laughs> so like if you're in Oklahoma City, let's go back to Oklahoma City a little bit because I mean, that's an event a lot of us recognize. Um, were you out, you, you said another team was out there, how, you know, locating the children in that nursery. Um, were you in that building? Because I understand that there was like, what, like 150 buildings damaged by the explosion, right? Correct. Correct. The buildings were mostly impacted by, uh, for example, the parking meters that were in the front were all filled with coins. And so those coins, ironically, were embedded throughout the, the street, oh all the gosh. different things. You think of those explosions. Um, but it became shrapnel. Shrapnel, of course, and anybody else. Because it wasn't such a busy time of day in that street, that incident was really focused to that area. It was also really the first time that teams were entering in an unstable uh, giant building and having the engineers get to work and allowing the locals, of course, to do their efforts as far as they can. And then coming back and working with the engineers and trying to get into that building as far as they can. And so it's not always the first day that they're able to go in as deep as they can until those areas are structurally secured for the search teams to go in. We had that same problem in uh, 9-11 too, right? Where it took a long yes. time to get in. Yeah, uh, the uh, the Pentagon uh, used uh, over 20 tractor trailers of uh, lumber to be able to shore those buildings up. I did not go to the Pentagon. I went to the World Trade Center. Uh, we did have enough teams that were split. 19 teams went to the World Trade Center and the rest went to the Pentagon. Um, and we did have those problems at the World Trade Center. We had the Army Corps of Engineers at different areas all throughout the uh, World Trade Center area with transits. And they would set them up on the buildings and they would record that today this building shifted nine inches or this building shifted two, but this other building shifted 19. And so if you guys are searching in those areas underneath the ground, you just have to be careful for the constant movement and shuffling of debris as it settles. Uh, back down into the, you know, five sub-basement floors that are underneath the World Trade Center. How do you respond to that? I mean, like, that's my, like, I get emotional. Like, I have a, I have a, an American flag in my studio, and I'm just, I, you know, I, I'm pretty a hardcore patriot, and I get emotional when I think about, like, not just all the people that impact were impacted, but, you know, what I would consider evil, right? Evil caused those incidents. Um, how do you, so I, I kind of have my own process of like how I prioritize or how I like segregate like my emotion from 
the work after going to Oklahoma City and after going to 9-11 and I'm sure other events we can talk about, how do you s- segregate some of that emotion that you're going through? Does it make you, does that put that stress of like, you're, you're, do you make mistakes? Does it make you focus more? Does it like, like how does that impact you? And how, how does uh, a future emergency manager or better yet, uh, a firefighter who's looking to get into USAR, how do you control that in the moment? Those around you, building a good foundation. You know, it takes a village to raise a child. It takes a village to help a responder, to rebuild those that are in need in the disaster. And then those that are helping those that have been affected by the disaster can't isolate yourself. You definitely have to be able to share. I've been married 40 years, so that really, really helped. (laughs) Five five wonderful grandchildren. And so um, having a, a wonderful partner to be able to express those things, whether they're sad, painful, and or angry events. Um, she's been able to understand. So a lot of those co-workers that you have, some that are open more than others, try to reach out to them. And when you brought that up, one of the interesting things that while on deployment, being a medical specialist and in charge, looking out for the not only the victims of the disaster, but the welfare and uh, comfort of our rescue the rest the rest of the rescue team including the canine we're always watching out for one of the individuals who has been affected uh, by what he had just been doing prior to now sitting down um, he's not joking he's always a joker uh, he's not hungry he always likes to eat um, you, you see him and he's not able to sleep whether it's a day shift or a night shift so we're also looking out for how they're dealing with these emotions these storms um, and how they're navigating them through the disaster. Going back to the Oklahoma City bombing, one of the break rooms that were made uh, was a little shelter, and they called it the a little little Hilton. It was the Montgomery County Response Hilton, and they just built a little area where they can get out of the sun. But unfortunately, it was built where you could still see the effects of the Alfred E. Mural building. And so as you're trying to take a break and have some water and maybe an MRE, and back then there weren't no cell phones in our hands, <laughs> but you're still looking at, you're still looking at the aftermath. And so we've learned to maybe let that break time be away from the affected area just for a little bit of common commonality into that area yeah. and then come back to the work and be able to do that. Well, um, I found for me, that uh, one of the one of the first hurricanes I responded to, I I had this like feeling like this 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 disaster response was just everywhere. I was actually in the hurricane, and sure. I was like, man, this is going to be brutal. And I remember doing kind of like a mini flashback to um, the 2011 uh, tsunami in Japan. Uh, I was involved yeah. with that, and when I first heard about it. I was like eating a bowl of cereal on my couch. I was like, man, this is crazy. And I still remember being in that hurricane and be like, there's someone somewhere eating a bowl of cereal and thinking, oh man, that's crazy. <laughs> and I was like, right. Like the, this, it, it really helped me understand like this event isn't everywhere. And uh, more so now than maybe before, but like with social media and the 24 hour news and everything, it's like, it just makes, it makes it feel like every event that's happening is everywhere. 
And, you know, if you have one group of stupid people that are doing, you know, something dumb in one city or that have hurt a lot of people there, it's like mm-hmm. now it feels like, oh, it must be everywhere. That's widespread chaos. And I think that's a really, really good call out that you're saying is like, hey, it's not everywhere. Like you can get out of this. And I think emotionally, too, you can get out of this, you know. Yeah. So that's huge. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. But you're definitely the expert here. I mean, Oklahoma, 9-11, I'm sure others, uh, we can get to that a little bit. But you, you bring up medical, right? And so that ESF-9, we always, we always go back and forth on the ESF-9. You know, the patches, as you've said before, like the patches, you know, seem similar, but they are different. What is the difference definitively from the expert himself, ESF-9, that medical side, to, you know, urban search and rescue or search and rescue? Um, in the early days, the medical component of the urban search and rescue task forces came under the auspice of ESF-9. Ironically, it was the medical licensing arm of the government during the Stafford Act and during emergency response. It delayed some of the uh, response times. Who knows what else was going on? And so it was separated and USAR. Uh, held and, and took care of its own medical component, i.e. the physicians and the paramedics um, and veterinarians for that. The DMAT teams, or disaster medical assistant teams, are a similar function to USAR coming into an affected disaster area, setting up and trying to restore what was there back to somewhat a normal sense of reality. Um, those responders um, are self-sufficient. Those teams are self-reliant. Uh, seven to ten days, they're not coming in and asking the mayor for a hotel and for a lodging and some food to eat while we set up a, a hospital. They're very efficient. And what they do is they try to set up themselves near or at where that hospital or medical facility existed. Sometimes it's in the direct disaster impact area. Sometimes it's just out of the outskirts, but it has been impacted and it's not running to the function that it was. And so the citizens, the communities and the response ambulance that are taking victims, people in the areas know where those hospital medical centers are. So DMAT, Disaster Medical Assistant Team, set those units up where those areas are. Mm. Different than the urban search and rescue components that actually try to set up a forward booth or a forward base of operations right at the impact center, i.e. Um, right on Church Street in front of Tower 2 between Building 4 and 5. And so they're at that impact center where DMAT maybe would have set up down the street near the Javis Center um, where they would have been able to take the injured. So, you know, just for everybody's sake, clear understanding, you guys go in there, you're, you're the guys who are not afraid of claustrophobic spaces. They're the guys setting up like those either those field hospitals or uh, teaming up next to the hospitals to, to receive patients as they're coming out. You grab, you, you grab they, they hopefully don't bag. They, 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 re, they recover. Yeah. Correct. Cool. Uh, and our, our, what we try to do is our job is to uh, have the, after it's structurally sound, the rescue operators breaching the con concrete and or the wood structure making access to the entrapped victims and or patient and then us trying to 
uh, bring them back to their pre and trap status. And that might mean two to three or four hours of uh, medical treatment while that patient is still in that confined space and trapped. Um, this is really intense uh, question, and you can choose not to answer it if you don't want to. Um, when I think of those, those more of those man-made events that I've been a part of, the emotion goes higher when, actually, that's not true. I was going to say the emotion goes higher when, you know, there's, um, there's audible, you know, sounds coming out, but really I just get to work. I'm able to kind of turn that off. But if you have a victim or you have a potential survivor, I know the female likes to use survivor versus victim, whatever. We can talk about that another time. But if you have somebody who's trapped and they are frantic and you understand that 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 frantic personality or whatever that, that's happening, that can actually cause more loss of, of blood and all these other things that can happen, high blood pressure. Um, how do you control, like, again, not making the mistake moving forward? Is there an event that you have in your life where you're like, I wanted to get to that, that woman or that child and it just took way longer than... than was expected? Uh, yes. It's um, interesting that you say that. And lessons learned are always shared. And also, hopefully, not mistake. the mistake is not made again and or the error. Not really a mistake. Yeah. Um, something as simple as uh, during the Haiti earthquake, um, the uh, supermarket, uh, multiple-story uh, Fontana, supermarket in Port-au-Prince, where our team was for several days, was able to capture the image through a camera of a gentleman uh, with his eyes open, um, laying in a confined space, unable to turn around, did have access to one of his arms. The other arm was still pinned behind his back. Um, We brought some of the team members, ironically, that were left behind, were replaced by uh, Haitian Creole firefighters uh, to be able to dialogue with those in there, be able to to have some exchange with those victims Um, through that camera, through that visual and now a vocal exchange. It becomes a medical issue. We can ask him how he is. Is he alone? Has there been anybody else in there? How is that other person doing? How are they laying? Have they been able to hear anybody else? Uh, can they feel the extremities on their body or able to move, touch, you know, et cetera, and going through those things. Um, he happened to have a young girl next to him. Um, it began, it was, ended up being at about a six-hour rescue. But during that whole time, when visual and then voice started and you were able to see a little bit, and through the holes that the rescue team made to stick the camera through, you are able to stick a water bottle through uh, so that they can wash their face off. And now you can see the camera the clearly different color of the hand that's not concrete impacted or his face is not concrete impacted. You now have some coloration of his skin. Then you can send another water bottle that's empty and inside there you try to put in some patient protective equipment, i.e. dust mask, uh, eyeglasses, um, some moist towelettes, um, even a couple of uh, bandages just if they have some active bleeding, which usually by this time days after they're not uh, and that active bleeding since unless there's movement uh, we failed to put, we failed to put one item in there um, so we send that down the gentleman is able to put the mask on himself he's able to put the mask 
uh, kind of to the little girl's face, not able to bring it overhead just because of the confinement and the crushing. It's almost uh, an egg salad sandwich with some G.I. Joe's stuck in it. Really is what you're looking at. <laughs> that is and, the most uh, interesting analogy I've ever heard <laughs> in my life. About okay. Sorry, it's serious. I mean, it's the, the debris and everything in there. Yeah. And egg salad they, sandwich. Yeah, the rescue team started cutting again. They needed to rebreach, trying to find how else we can get to these people. There was rebar and concrete in the way without causing a secondary shift mm. and things going not in the right direction. When they started up the saw, that little girl, we didn't give her earplugs, and we all carried earplugs, and she just started screaming, not knowing. So we started a psychological event here two days after her earthquake and now the teams are trying to come help and you know what are these guys trying to do so something as simple as that it's like man a set of earplugs really could have done well for her and then for all the other guys around too yeah i mean yeah i mean that i have as i've talked about several times i have a baby boy he's uh he's 20 months old i'm about to have another one here soon man that kid can wail when he wants to uh (laughs) he's a he has the gift of gab like his dad i guess but uh, that's, um, man, that's, I wouldn't say unimaginable because I've kind of been there a little bit. Uh, not as, not as intense as that, but it's, I, mean, I thought you might, might've talked about, you know, one of the events that we just briefly mentioned, but just shows how much experience you really do have, whether it's Haiti, whether it's nine 11, um, man, well, it sounds like you got both of them out, right? Yeah. Hopefully. Yeah. Okay. Good. So yeah, that's, absolutely. Yes, they were part of the five uh, individuals that uh, were able to be brought out of the Caribbean market uh, by the task force, uh, and cool. one including a, uh, uh, right next door was a, a school, and we were able to uh, successfully amputate uh, proximal humeral on a nine-year-old girl we nicknamed Precious and brought her back to the state. Oh, I've heard about this. Yeah. Was was a surviving victim. The, the irony was it was at night, uh, so the challenges were there. The rescuers were waist deep in sewage water um just the exchange um the medical doctor had not been on that type of a disaster uh there were eviscerations that had been there for two or three days yeah. uh, so the spell was pretty pretty intense and it was about nine inches of clearance to be able to perform a uh, an amputation on a on a young girl so the medical challenges that were there the decisions that were made for uh, medical control um, respiratory. And then the irony is where were we going to send her? Who was going to take her once we finished? Yeah. Where was the feeding facility? Correct. I was, um, I was at a conference. Gosh, this makes me sound so lame. You're so cool. You're like a real hero. Uh, I was, uh, I was at a conference and we were talking, we were having discussion about, um, alerting families when you find body parts and we had a plane crash at Reno and um, was it Reno? I think it was Reno where the largest body part was the size of a thumb. And mm-hmm. so what happens when you find a identified body part, you're able to trace it back and say, Hey, let you, let you bury the remains of an individual. If you hear interesting to hear on your, your end of the spectrum, once you've identified an, a body part of an individual and you're able to return the remains to the family, do you have advice or do you have a suggestion where let's say months down the road, they're a- able to identify additional 
remains. Do you think you should alert the family or do you think the family should opt out of hearing about those additional remains? What do you think about that? I can, I'm going to bring this to you from several points of view. Okay. Um, I, cool. Of course, when we were at the, the World Trade Center it be, and crossing through the sub-basement levels of the top, um, we were encountering uh, body parts, but also personal artifacts that were important to mm. that person for closure, but maybe I didn't find the actual body part, but that watch that came off of that wrist um, is still here. And you might have fixed something for your wife before she left because, you know, the, the class didn't work right. You did something, you know, just little closure things like that. Mm-hmm. It also affected the rescuers as we saw down there because there were body parts and then there was movement of the piles. Um, they began to take markers out and turn the inside of their pant leg out and write their name on their pant leg and on their arms. Should there be a secondary event? And they became in the same dismemberment as they were finding that they would, there would be closure for them. So it psychologically affected the rescuers when they were in that sub-basement level for that. Um, I, and uh, very truthful, as you said, the impacts um, in the commercial aviation crash that you went to in Reno, the smallest was a, a thumb uh, going to the vet value jet crash in the Everglades uh, basically was pretty much the same thing. I think it was in 97 or 98 that that occurred. It wasn't much to find once that impact was there. Um, But on that, on that body part, it's really hard to say one way or another, i.e. we are a gold star family. Um, We are friends with another gold star uh, mother who shortly after she was uh, told that her son had passed in Afghanistan um, about six months later, they had recovered a limb. And so that mother was approached and a decision needed to be made whether that limb was going to be brought back to the States. Was there going to be an exhumation of the body? What was going to happen to that? So you could see the emotional impact that that creates um, in all settings. And that's a different disaster. But again, it, it impacts not only those that are close to that same person, but the person that you're giving that body part to. But again, who are we to say that, man, I had the opportunity to have some and you didn't let me have that opportunity. Um, did, I'm sorry to, to mention this. Did you say you were a gold star family yourself? Yes. I'm so sorry to hear that. Thank you. Thank you for your entire family service. That's very huge. Yeah. More bigger than than anybody should have to sacrifice. Thank you. Um, I thought today we were going to be talking about the theories uh, and the ideas of urban search and rescue. And what we've just talked about in seriously like 15, 20 minutes are I'm we got to get you back on the show. I'm going to say this halfway through the episode now, but we got to get you back on here and really dive into these. Um, but uh, that gold star, uh, as a guy whose wife is nine months pregnant, thinking about the future of my kids. Um, I'm glad we're talking about the psychological impact of response because, uh, I was out at, uh, I was out at fires, um, 
a while ago and um I was I was kind of watching um some of the survivors go through their things of their family and we had um the National Guard go in first. Again, this is when I was on the, the Fed side and um they made sure that there was no remains and I was I was praying. I was I mean, those families wouldn't find anything. But in terms of a psychological impact, uh I would after being to hurricanes and wildfires and you know, I mean, you've been to all kinds of terrorist attacks as well. Um, like I would much prefer, this sounds insane. I would much more prefer a, a survivor going through a wildfire than a hurricane only because when a wildfire goes through and literally destroys everything, your mind can't wrap around all the little things that you've lost but a hurricane, you have to go through and wipe down every single heirloom and to see if like your pictures were saved and your walls. Um, so I really, really appreciate you talking about the psychological impact because it shows that it's not just on the the, the uh, survivor side. It's very much involved on anybody who's on the decision-making level of response and the, the weight of that even. And so like on all levels, I mean, you're just... Is really hitting, and we and we leave, you know, and and it's it's there's so much impact after we leave that emergency manager, emergency management, emergency managers have to come in and try and sort through yeah. from the housing, from food to public health to getting everything back, and we don't get to see all of that extra work, but we can only imagine and understand. Uh, I can't, especially living in Florida and being hurricane impacted <laughs> my whole life. But the amount of work that goes on after uh, the, the the rescuers leave, there's so much still to be done for months and months and months after that. Uh, it's still an emergency function. Those managers are trying to bring that town, that 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 city, that that county, that state back into its original state, the way that it was, if it can, um, responding to. Jefferson Davis Boulevard during Hurricane Katrina on the Mississippi side where the hurricane land made landfall mm. uh, for the first 15 days was a completely different experience um, than those that were there for the first 15 days over on the Louisiana side. We went home 15 days after. Uh, we're home for a day and a half and we're rerouted. Uh, redeployed back to New Orleans now mm. since the water had receded to go back into those homes and now seeing both sides of the disaster, one during the impact of the hurricane and then one afterwards. And you had mentioned being in a hurricane when we were there the fifth day 15 to day 30, Hurricane Rita came through uh, New Orleans uh, while we were still there and caused a little havoc to the, the nice... Uh, <laughs> base of operations that uh, the folks set up, i.e. a funny story because your listeners need to be a little entertained. Yeah, but everyone's like they, crying back home they, right now, yeah. They, <laughs> they brought in porta johns porta toilets. Mm. For us, that's all because it beats using a five-gallon bucket or digging a hole. Yeah. So, And it takes a while for those porta johns to get in. It takes, you know, the, the roads have to be cleared. They have to get sent in somehow. Somebody's, it, it, it's a logistical, here comes emergency management. So they set them up and we're able to use them. We're over on the uh, New Orleans Saints practice facility area. And here comes Hurricane Rita. So we all shelter in the practice facility where all those portage get lifted. They get flipped upside down. So now we got to rewrite them 
but now all that stuff that was in the toilet is up on the roof. Oh, that's so gross. <laughs> so now, now when you're going in, you're going in with a newspaper over the top of your head going, oh gosh, I got to get out of here quick. <laughs> it's a crappy situation. That's for sure. Yes, it is. Man, <laughs> that's horrible. That's so gross. Uh, uh, we, I had a friend on here a while ago, uh, somebody I was on the strike team with. Um, we were driving back from, we were on an exercise and he's allergic to bees. A bee oh. came in the car and he's like, oh, there's a bee in my shirt. And so I was driving, I was smacking his, his shirt trying to get the bee, but apparently the bee freaked out and ended up stinging him pretty bad. And so we got back into the parking lot and um, he was like, oh, I got to grab an EpiPen. He's like freaking out. So we were in the middle of the parking lot outside the training facility. He was wearing like really, really thick um, like canvas pants. And, you know, EpiPen can go through, but I'm not a medical guy. I'm like, you know, I, I have training, but I'm not, you know, in practice. So I'm like, all right, let's just move the pants. So I'm literally standing behind him. His pants are down in the middle of a parking lot, halfway bend over, and I'm about to shove something in the side of him. And right then, our medical liaison guy pulls in the parking lot. And he's like, what are you doing? Right in there in the middle of the parking lot, pants pulled down. So awkward. <laughs> he's like, let, let me help you guys out. And I was like, oh, thank goodness. I'm not going to kill this guy. But I still will, I will always tell my buddy, I said, hey, uh, you know, I basically saved your life that day. He's like, dude, you're the reason why that beast on me. <laughs> so, that's awesome. Um, that is a great, great story. Yeah. Hey guys, this ends part one of Joe Hernandez's episode. We're so glad you tuned in. Make sure you learn more about Joe. He posted a lot of cool stuff for us to share on the Disaster Tough podcast Instagram page. Again, check out part two next week of Joe's episode. And in the meantime, go to Instagram and tell us what you think of Joe's show on the Disaster Tough podcast. <laughs> <laughs>